Okay. Let us begin. Okay, you guys are recording now? We are recording. Okay. It's the Rotary Podcast, episode six. Episode six with Michael Whistler. (laughs) Are we we starting over? Yeah, we're starting over. Here we go. Ready? Welcome back, everybody. This is episode six of the Rotary Podcast, and we have a special guest. We're a little punch happy here. We've just spent the last 45 minutes, maybe an hour, trying to get this technical setup to work through the laptop. During uh, plague time, of course, still. So the remote uh, dialing in of people is not always super easy. You could not figure out how to get that laptop on. Yeah, just, you know, hitting the button. <laughs> Cut to that scene in Zoolander where the monkeys are. <laughs> um, so we have an awesome guest, um, Michael Whistler, who's a longtime friend and partner. He works with the Newaki Story team. It's all part of the Votary extended family. And uh, he's a actually award-winning storyteller, filmmaker, book author, and we thought this would be a great um, a great topic of discussion: the different mediums of story, books. Have you ever done a comic book or anything other than uh, books and screenplays? I have not uh, ventured into comic books myself, but I have often fantasized about it and do read a lot of graphic novels. So tell, tell us, tell us what you have written and uh, and and created as a storyteller. Okay, wow. Uh, well, first of all, thanks uh, for for having me on. It's an honor. Um, and yeah, so, what have I created? Uh, well. I've done a lot of short films, uh, spent several years actually uh, pursuing exclusively narrative filmmaking uh, and doing a lot of short films as sort of uh, proving ground for uh, trying to break into doing feature films, a lot of science fiction in that mix, but not always science fiction. Uh, and then I've also written both short and feature length screenplays that haven't necessarily been produced. Uh, and uh I've also written three novels, uh, two of which are currently published, uh, and the third one is due out next year. And that one actually is based on a story that you and I came up with, uh, Jed. That's right. And uh, yeah, that one should be uh, published next year, time travel uh, sort of thriller. It's pretty fun. Uh, And I've also written a lot of short stories, uh, some of which have gotten published, some of which I'm currently seeking uh, a platform for publishing, submitting to like science fiction magazines and things like that. And I've written a nonfiction book uh, on making short films. So it's more or less, yeah. <laughs> I think that, and, and, and my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter regularly asks me to make up stories on the spot. So there's that too. Which are honestly some of the best, right? When you have to just go right? for it. And I mean, my, my boy's, still talk about some of the epic bed, bedtime stories of yesteryear, wishing that we had recorded them or written them down. And, you know, you just kind of just go off the cuff and it's like sometimes some of the best stuff. But I've had the privilege of uh, working with you for many years now. So we first met way back um, when we were crewing up for the feature film that I made called Silk Trees. And you were assistant director on that. So you were the voice that everybody could hear hollering throughout the set. Pictures up, stand by, roll cameras, roll sound, the whole deal. 
Why are, why are we behind schedule? Why are we behind yeah. schedule? That's the main thing people heard you yelling. And Actually, you, you were a really great AD because you, you struck that good va- balance between sort of being the jerk that you needed to be, but with a big smile and, 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 and you know, politely trying to move everything along, which is what an AD has to do. Like, I've been on other sets where the AD is just a jerk, never, only the jerk side, no, none of the nice side, and uh, that's not fun. So you, you did actually really great on that. From there, we, oh, we, we um, let's see, I moved up to the Boston area where, where we are in, here in Worcester now. Um, and then you came, what was it, a year later, something like that? Yeah, it was uh, 2008. So yeah, something like not, uh, maybe a year, a little over a year. Not following me. It's just completely separate, but kind of we were brought well, back together. Well, I wouldn't say completely separate. I... I uh, I decided to take a closer look at at uh, New England, kind of based on your recommendation. So okay. it's not completely separate. Okay, yeah. that that recommendation uh, got got my radar, radar sort of honed in. You know, because at the time my wife and I were uh, considering West Coast, considering Los Angeles, and uh, and then you kind of say, eh, check out East Coast though too. And it became it was a it was also a, a as far as work-wise for my wife, it was a little easier transition for her. So several factors kind of played into it. Um, and uh, so I, I, I went with it. Can't believe that was 12 years ago. I know, right? <laughs> That's just nuts to me. So, so far back. But anyway, okay, so you, you've written quite a bit more than I have. Uh, let's talk about the magic and art of storytelling. What do you prefer more, screenplays or novels? You know, uh, it, it's kind of been a transition for me. Uh, the interesting thing was that when I first got like fell in love with storytelling as a kid, uh, it was movies, but my first foray into like telling stories on my own was, uh, was writing books actually. Uh, it was, you know, I was still fairly young when I like read Jurassic Park for the first time and then was like, I want to do something like this. I want to write books. And then like started uh, playing with that, with the idea that uh, of wanting to go the direction of both, you know, visual medium, doing cinema, doing uh, films and uh, always writing books for several years there. As I pursued feature filmmaking as a career, uh, I kind of lost track or set aside. I just like didn't. I, I focused, you know, intentionally on the on the filmmaking side of things, and so I didn't do as much um, narrative fiction writing, writing short stories, or writing novels and things like that. I kind of, you know, put that on the back burner for a while, and then as um, I started looking at the prospects of like doing more multifaceted storytelling and branching, really kind of building a, a platform for my first feature film. What I ended up doing was taking the screenplay uh, that I, I'd written a feature length screenplay in uh, for a sci-fi horror thriller uh, film and decided, well, actually I can just use this as my outline for a novel, publish that, and then uh, try to use that as uh, a means to sort of grease the, the the gears to find funding and all that other stuff. Uh, never quite 
managed to do that, uh, transitioned into, you know, working uh, full time uh, with Votary in Milwaukee. Um, but uh, so that, my my main mode of storytelling now is uh, writing novels and short stories at this point uh, outside of the storytelling I do for work. You are obsessed with sci-fi. Fair to say? <laughs> yes, that's fair to say. <laughs> Why? What is it about that genre that you gravitate towards so much? Yeah, um, conversation I continue to have. In fact, that's like uh, I've recently launched a podcast just around that whole concept of exploring why sci-fi why does it matter what's important and my whole sort of slogan behind it is that uh science fiction just might save the world uh around this idea that science fiction is a genre that's just very naturally uh prepped and ready to just like it's just perfectly set up to ask big philosophical questions it's set up in such a way where we can assess the moment we're in right now and ask where are we going from here what are the potential consequences uh what are the potential upsides and uh, to really examine those things and, and put them in a context that uh allows ideas to reach their natural their logical conclusion that sometimes is a little tough to do when when we're just uh, in our day-to-day lives. Uh, and they offer this grandiose scale. Uh, oftentimes, within the context of science fiction, you've got things like concepts like deep time and, and really understanding the, the, the scale of the universe in terms of time, as well as the scale of the universe in, ter- in terms of um, space and just how vast and how tiny and insignificant we we can really seem in the face of that and then ask those questions okay so what where does our meaning come from where does our our sense of purpose and uh and even just the simple questions of where are we headed in terms of the science and uh political and sociological developments we see in the world um and and what what are we going to allow or not allow? What are we going to venture into unintentionally? Um, one of the big things that I keep exploring both in stories and in conversations with people is, is what I think is just around the corner for us, which is uh, transhumanism, uh, where, where technology uh, becomes, our, our biology and technology become just uh, in, inseparable. Uh, we are going to, we are. We, I see the trends already in so, in so many ways of where we are going to no longer need, uh, you know, the, these devices because all of this tech is going to be implanted directly in us. And what is what? So there's some questions there about what do we allow, who do we become, what are we giving up in the process of doing those things, and that's just those are all questions that science fiction is just ready set up to do. Um, do you feel like so that's, that's why I love it, I guess. <laughs> do you feel like there's some, you know, like I, I wouldn't classify myself as a sci fi fan, but I also feel like there's probably a lot, maybe it's the ones that are more along the lines of what you're saying, the ones that ask bigger questions are the ones that I'm like, oh, I really love that film because, um, you know, it got me thinking. You know, it wasn't just 
here's the plot and here's the characters. It got me actually thinking about it days or weeks after the film. You know, is that kind of, as a more avid fan, you know, is there that distinction between, oh, there's a lot in this genre that's, you know, it's just mindless entertainment with spaceships and all this stuff. And then there's these actual, like, um, pocket of really good, amazing, you know, examples. Like, I don't know if you have any that inspired you or that were kind of like something that even growing up that were the ones that kind of set you on this trajectory or yeah no I, th- I think that's a really good observation and and often uh what i uh, come back to is that um especially with mass production like we create so much content uh one of the tough things is that um you know 80 percent of it's you know of anything mass produced tends to be not so great uh so there's because there is so much sci-fi yeah there is plenty of like really bad sci-fi out there and just mediocre sci-fi um in yeah, which and then there's you could you could say that about every single genre right like yes yeah <laughs> I, i've just i've just heard you specifically true, yeah. like picking apart certain like space films and being like like oh i watched it and it was okay and then you come in like i see you talk about it a couple of days later and you're like there's no way that spaceship could have gone that far. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> like, like it still sounds like it has to be ground, even though it's fantasy, it's also grounded in this like reality, which is so interesting. Yeah. There, I mean, there's that aspect of, um, plausibility and believability. Uh, and there's also, it, it's, it kind of comes down to, uh, where within the spectrum because it's not it's not a, a singular sort of monolithic genre um, in fact i was just having a really good conversation with a phd about this on an uh, episode that i just recorded for for my own podcast around this you know the genres of, of sort of soft science fiction hard science fiction fantasy and where to differ uh and it, there is there is a lot to be said about Something like like I would I generally don't criticize Star Wars for uh, doing things that are patently uh, unscientific uh, because uh, Star Wars is not hard science fiction. In, uh, in fact, it's probably not even soft science fiction. It's actually fantasy in space. Uh, we basically have mm. magic and uh, you know an empire and How all these kinds you. of things. Nights. <laughs> Wait, you're saying it's not real? I thought it was documentary. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, you're right. It it is a documentary. <laughs> Can we get a hard edit on this moment? Yeah, we're gonna need to. Yeah, I think it, let's maybe avoid such decisive, divisive content. You know, because <laughs> we're going for broad appeal. <laughs> you, you know, you don't want me to call it fa- fantasy in space. We're just going to record over you and just be like, oh, I love Star Wars. And just do like a completely I mean, different voice. <laughs> Star Wars is my favorite show. Well, that's, you know, the funniest part about it is like, it's not that I don't like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. It's just like, just as I like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all that kind of stuff. Like those are all meaningful stories in and of itself. Uh, they're just not, you know, they're not hard sci-fi um, no, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, we're, Star we're with is, you. Is mm-hmm. fantasy anything yeah. in space usually is like dubbed as as science fiction, but it's it's not mm-hmm. not usually the case. Um, piggybacking off of what Jono was saying, was there like the uh, uh, first book or movie or something that really struck you early in your life that was like, okay, this is you know 
sort of like really inspiring or um, kind of got you on the path of falling in love with sci-fi or just storytelling in general? Yeah. Um, I think I, I always enjoyed movies and stories and it's very like imaginative in that particular direction. But I distinctly remember um, seeing Jurassic Park in the theater uh, just like, as a fifth grader, you know, and uh, and that was a that was a transformative moment, you know, uh, and I'd, so I, I just I remember that I remember later picking up the book and reading it and being like that, like I really enjoy that aspect of just how the story was fleshed out with so much plausibility. And I think that's where, you know, kind of also to answer uh, a bit of what Jono was asking there about uh, the type of sci-fi I tend towards. I do tend towards the highly plausible um, speculative sci-fi, uh, the hard sci-fi, uh, because um there's something so fun and interesting and engaging about building such a plausible scenario and world, but also the real ethical questions that come out of that. For, for, mm. So for me, Jurassic Park became this uh, touch point because of the fact that it took a concept and it explored, well, what happens if you, if you make this scientific advancement uh, and, and do it just because you can – and do it without further, sort of in a vacuum, kind of isolating that scientific advancement from ethics and from other influences. Really, it's only, or it's at least its strongest influence, uh, is capitalism. We can make a lot of money. We can build a cool park. We can make a lot of money. Um, and, and then the, the challenges and the sort of the cautionary tale nature of it. Um, but I'm not only drawn to to the that like I definitely am drawn to stories that also explore uh, sort of the upside or the real possibilities of what else might uh, we might encounter. So another incredibly formative story uh, for me was the movie Contact, which is also based on on a novel uh, that was written by uh, Carl Sagan. And which I it took me years, but I finally got around to reading the the novel, and and it's it's legitimately a, a one of the most beautiful books I've I've uh, read. And that view, uh, I remember watching Contact. Uh, I was like maybe a high schooler when like '90s when it came out, and I just like watched it on VHS, and I finished the movie and just went off to my room to be alone. Um, and I legitimately laid on the floor and, and I think I wept for like a half an hour Mm. because for the first time in my life, I began to have a sense of scale to the universe. And, and it was just mind blowing to think like, here we are on this like little speck, uh, trying to like say eke out our existence Mm. And yet this like this universe around us that is easy to look up at and, and look at the stars at night and be like, oh, isn't it pretty? But like not be able to fully grasp just the utter vastness of it. 
Um, and so that became a, a transformative story as well. So, so and they, they, and those two books and movies kind of represent the um, sort of the 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 breadth of what I love exploring, which is both. You know, I love a good cautionary tale, um, and I love just opening up the horizons and saying, "What else is out there?" And and who are we in the face of it? Another um, thing that you love and I love, we share this, is um, a, a little, you know, diving into the ideas of um, time travel. And, uh, you know, you, you and I outlined. It's not possible. Yeah, it's, 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 well, it's we, not possible. We have a book that you should read okay. about that. Um, no, uh, that was really fun to outline the, you didn't change the title, did you? No, no. Yeah, it's still called Stop. Stop yep. is the name mm-hmm. of uh, the story. And uh, it came from a short film that, that Michael wrote, and then we kind of just got riffing on it, and it turned into a feature-length uh, script after the outline. And I can't wait to read the, the book version of it, but um, time, cool, cool little time travel idea. And, uh, yeah, so, so what do you think? Um, do you think... Going back to what we were talking about with um, with sci-fi, you think that uh, you think it's the best genre to explore? Um, like you said, the, the the bigger moral questions, or why is it why that why that specific genre? Do you, why do you think it's is it because we're exploring what you know the what first, and then that naturally leads to the why? Like, okay, here's the bounds of what reality is, and then it just naturally bumps into the the why. Or what do you think? I well, I I think I think it, it often happens that way for for a lot of a lot of science fiction writers um, that there's a level of oh here here's like a, a cool idea a what right the the maybe you know take take like ex machina you know and like can we make a, a yes uh, very much my kind of sci-fi um, but yeah can we make a, a robot that is so clearly a robot and yet trick a human being into believing that they're like sentient have feelings and all that kind of stuff and so that's like it's a cool what but naturally within that uh, because it's it, it, it's just like that idea already is so just riddled with bigger why questions uh, and bigger philosophical implications around, okay, well, what is personhood and what do you, what do we consider the boundary uh, between machine and then sentience and personhood? And, and you get to explore those things in a way that, you know, it's hard it's hard to ask that question right now um, in a in a drama, in a, just you know a regular straight drama, um, because in many ways, like that's just not the reality we're living in. If that were our current daily reality, and we had questions about it, you might see it come up in a drama that deals with it. Um, much in the same way that you know, I, I think we're only. Uh, maybe a decade or two away from a movie like The Martian being uh, essentially considered a, a drama, you know, because mm-hmm. it it would it eventually will be 
a real, not a lived reality for most of us, but it will be lived reality for at least enough of us that it's not exactly science fiction anymore. I remember seeing um, iRobot. I and he goes on autopilot <laughs> in the tunnel or whatever. like that's so stupid mm-hmm. just cars driving themselves like i was possible saying, yeah you know now it's like a couple of years from now it's probably gonna be weird to have cars that don't have autopilot systems <laughs> yeah it's gonna be vintage right. oh that's a that's a manual driver oh what um yeah i think that's what's really <laughs> but that's the most interesting slash useful slash horrifying thing of what you've been referring to as hard science fiction which is the the more plausible this yeah. could happen uh, spectrum of the genre like an ex machina or or other movies like that where like that's the part that's like it, it gives it gives them it gives the storyteller the ability to play out an idea to its logical conclusion like if this which we know is in the realm of possibility then how far could it go right, right. Um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a useful exercise. It's also very horrifying at times. And I also want to ask you this question. How much do you think story, like science fiction storytelling, uh, how much of it do you think is like predictive, like like self, self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Like do we only pursue the things that we pursue in advancements in technology and stuff like that because we tell stories about them? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, do Star Trek. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do we do we tell stories and fantasize about space exploration or artificial intelligence, and therefore we then actually start pursuing them because of the stories that we tell, or do you think they're more in tandem? Like, how do you see, how do you see like the predictive nature of sci-fi working? Does that make sense? Yes. No. Yeah. That, and that's a question a lot of people continue to ask. Um, I think. Like there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's whole whole academic books and and whatnot that could be explored on on that nature. And there's certainly things we can point to in terms of like tangible things, like Star Trek communicators leading to you know right. cell phones and, and flip phones and all that kind of stuff. And so there's certainly examples like that. Uh, I mean, I would I would actually. F- from a philosophical perspective, maybe push back on the on the question a little bit and say, uh, I'm not sure that we do anything without first telling ourselves stories about it. Uh, just just from a a perspective of like what goes on in our brains and how wired for storytelling our brains are and how necessary narrative is for sense making uh, in our daily lives. Right. Um, that there's, I would question whether we do anything without first telling ourselves those stories. So there's a certain value in what kind of stories do we want to tell from that perspective, because they'll potentially have impact and influence uh, in in terms of the kinds of people we become, the kinds of societies we foster, uh, and so forth. Um, but I do think that there there is a dodge sword with science fiction where there are ways in which it can and does predict certain things about uh, our future. So, like, you know, when uh, William Gibson's novel uh, Neuromancer came out, uh, what was that, like early 80s? 
Um, you know, that's the, that's the book that the term cyberspace comes from. That's where that got coined. And, and it is the birth of the cyberpunk genre. And, uh, and his rendering of this weird uh, cybernetically uh, connected world um, it was super bizarre at the time and yet like here we are doing it right it's it, like this is neuromancer in so many ways and uh, it became reality I'm not sure that I'm not sure that uh, because neuromancer because Gibson wrote neuromancer that made the internet possible uh, as much as maybe he just tapped into something of, of uh, the direction it was going. But you can also point to plenty of other science fiction examples uh, where plenty of inventions and things that have not necessarily come to fruition. And part of that is that at the end of the day, science fiction, like most any other fiction, is about uh, assessing and making sense of the moment we're in right now. Um, so that's why they remain interesting and relevant, uh, but they don't always, uh, date well <laughs> either. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I remember when I was in college, there was kids that were in my class writing scripts about, you know, virtual reality stuff and, you know, 2014, 2013, 2015, that area, you know, it's like that had been talked about. So that definitely sparked hey, I should write something and, and play that out to fruition. Like, like you guys were saying, like, what's one idea and what if we push it to the limit, right? You push it to the limit. But, you know, I just recently tried the Oculus uh, or like Quest 2 or something. And <laughs> I think it's awesome. Like I could see in a couple of years, like, you know, you know how we have like the PS5, the Xbox, you know, and the Oculus, you know, it's like a gaming system that I feel like people are going to be, it's just going to be common in households very, very quickly because I, there was no lag it was totally immersive, like vibration in the hand, like it felt haptic, everything that I could pick up and the physics were real, hitting the punching bag and the ping pong ball. And it was like r real life within this thing. And then you take it off and then you're almost like stumbling around like, oh, real world? Like <laughs> what's going on here? Like it's so strange. So I could, you know, even just the technologies that, you know, it's, it's just exponential. So like automations and and like you said transhumanism like i don't know what the next thing like what what movies are we watching now that you know 10 years from now we're gonna be like that was it you know we're in yeah it like whistler what's the most caution cautionary tale we should pay attention to or what what should we be like <laughs> most cautious about along those lines like what's most relevant now in your opinion I think we lost Whistler. Is he there? <laughs> that was a formidable silence. That was a, that was a pregnant pause. You guys don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've missed a chunk of that. Oh my god, that was so good. Was a, do you want to ask again, Mike Palumbo? Did Did you hear me, Whistler? I was saying, um, like, like now we're kind of experiencing like sci-fi modern life and even just like gaming, like John was talking about with the Oculus Rift and everything where that still to me, I feel like an old man, like it creeps me out. And, but like, I'm curious what you think about what, what, what should we, we be most cautious about 
like what's the most important cautionary tale in your opinion right now yeah yeah is it, is it ai is it the, like ex machina like should we be freaked out by ai because i just certainly am <laughs> i think i think there's a natural propensity to be freaked out by ai i'm not sure that it is necessarily the uh the thing that that, that we need to be most concerned about i am um, hey google I, should i be I afraid of ai more, <laughs> yeah alexa what's <laughs> ai what's up with ai <laughs> Oh, it's working. Is AI trustworthy? <laughs> just ask, yeah, just ask Alexa. No, it AI literally it literally heard me from my pocket. It says I describe myself as helpful with a smiley face. Oh my god. That's <laughs> yeah, a, of course you do. Of so course wow. you do. Just just like when you talk about that that doesn't freak us out that your phone just li- was listening yeah. to you before you were even talking. It ha- these have microphones. They're all listening to mm-hmm, us mm-hmm. and even a couple years ago, if you told me that, it would freak me out. Now that your phone interrupted our conversation yeah. because it was listening. I was like kidding just then, but then I felt it vibrating it doesn't, in my pocket. Why like, doesn't what? that freak me out? Should it freak me out? You know what yes, I mean? Yes, it should. And, and, and just in a text conversation with friends today, uh, a friend sent a message and it was all kind of like garbled, didn't make sense. And she goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. My watch doesn't understand me. Oh my goodness. And I said, can you imagine <laughs> I know. That saying sentence. that sentence Hearing to somebody sentence, even yeah. a few years ago? I know. We would you being a crazy person. Well, what we're doing is we're trading <laughs> right. we're trading our uh, convenience away and you know, we're giving up security and privacy and we're taking a lot of convenience because it's helping us get stuff done faster and not have to be working as hard all this different stuff yeah. but it's like where's that line oh my watch doesn't even understand me <laughs> and yet and yet we don't have <laughs> flying cars i know Dang it. michael whistler why don't we have well, flying are, cars yeah why don't they're, we why aren't they here already they have made them they just aren't they aren't as like uh, commercially viable as we thought when in the 80s right Drones well, are so, coming first. So Whistler, what sh- if you're not freaked out by AI? What what is what do you feel like? I feel like you, you, we started talking about something else. Come I'm on, man! You got to be spooked by something. No. What's a, what? What do you feel like? You're like, oh, this is. We should be worried about this, or we should be really like paying attention to this. And sci-fi is pointing this out. And is it Roombas? I I think the the isolation. <laughs> A falling in love with your Roomba, I, I think, is maybe the uh, the the big DJ thing. Roomba. Uh, you know, stuff stuff like, you know, the the movie Her, mm. um, I think, captures that well. Uh, around uh, sort of human isolation in uh, an age of of hyper technology, and I and my so my concerns are more not so much what AI might do in the terms of a Terminator and, and like okay, the AI is going to rise up and kill us as much as like Jono was saying there at the amount of information and privacy that we give up uh, for the sake of convenience. Um, but more even than that, because right now we're just in this weird state where we, we give it up and there's so much of it that frankly, um, most of it's probably just like safe, uh, by default, because there's just too much information to, for anyone to figure out what to do with it. But eventually, that won't be the case. And that's that's concerning, as is the fact that not so much that AI might choose to do something with it, but that people might choose to do uh, 
something with that information that's not so uh, ethical or, or moral. Um, and and who do we become as people as we because um, you know we're we're actively rewiring our brains for this stuff and as and as we raise subsequent generations to be so instantly connected through technology, what does that do to our brains? And then are we prepared for the next level of it? Uh, as I've hinted at already, which is once we start implanting this stuff in our brains and I don't have to pick up my phone, to respond to that text message or to browse the internet or do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all happening inside my mind. Uh, there's potentially some amazing upsides to all of that. However, are we prepared for the way it's going to rewire our brains and fundamentally change us as people? Yeah, that's an interesting um, topic, too, is like the the moral indifference of technology, right? right? Like every advancement, every piece of technology can be used for good or for bad. Do you think that sci-fi as a genre has a more pessimistic or optimistic view of human nature? You know, that's, that's a, a really awesome question uh, that I was actually just, just addressing uh, in a recent episode of uh, my podcast too. And uh, like, we see a shift uh, as a real like nerd of, you know, sci-fi nerd. Um, I've done my fair share of reading and studying and we see a shift in science fiction. Uh, in its early days, there was a particular subgenre, utopian fiction, uh, that was very popular. And uh, pretty much post-World War II, the utopian literature genre is completely dead. It just mm. does not exist. And there was a specific shift in, I think, just our collective psyche at that time when uh, we looked around at the world and we said, I don't know that human beings are really headed towards such a great future that we're really actually capable of building utopia. And that's where you see the, the you know, utopia died, dystopia rises. And then you get a lot more cautionary tales. And so in a sense, uh, there is a real sense in which science fiction has become uh, arguably predominantly pessimistic, uh, though I would also argue there's a, it, it, we need to be careful about classifying it as too pessimistic Mm -hmm. because there's also a natural tendency within any time we try to start setting up a story and telling a story where, uh, you know, you need conflict. And so it's easier to set up the, the Frankenstein scenario, uh, as you know, science does this crazy stuff and then bad stuff happens because it's riddled with conflict and it's an easy right. Uh, it's a little different. There's also why I think like a movie like The Martian represents a bit of a breath of fresh air to science fiction, or the book for that matter, um, because it's not a scenario in which science runs amok and um, it causes all kinds of unintended consequences. It's actually a very relatable story because the real 
uh, antagonists of the story are circumstances. He happens to be stuck on Mars. He just happens to have to figure his way through this. And it just happens to be that using you know science, physics, chemistry, uh, he is able to uh, work his way through each of those circumstances and ensure his survival. Uh, so there is room in science fiction for that. And so we see it in certain stories. Uh, contact, again, is a great example of that hopefulness that actually we look, we're, we're, we're full of problems and we're immature as a species, but hopefully we will reach a point where we grow past those things. Um, but there is a lot of, a lot of pessimism. <laughs> Well, let I me mean, look around. It's like, uh, like being a, uh, you know, optimist or being negative. It's just like sometimes I feel like stories. Just if you're going to tell a story and you're trying to be, you know, convincing, it's just it seems like it's pessim pessimism or, but it's just, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm just being realistic. More, more grounded. Do you feel? I, I, do you... I can't stand movies that are like or stories that are like trying to be forcibly positive it makes me like, so I, like can't, i'm like i can't like relate to this like i, when I, I was a kid like, i used to love the happy endings and then now i like get mad if it's like if it all buttoned up too cleanly i'm like it's if it, it feels forced it, right like happy endings should be something where it's like it, yeah. you know it's like don't don't, don't don't force me to be dragged down don't like just show just like oh there's like the the depravity of humanity just for the sake of like just dragging me down at least like yeah, you know how easy me, to like, do that let, let me flatline so, so don't walking dead it yeah <laughs> but don't don't, don't force don't do some force positivity to try to be like yay wrap it up like it, you know yeah it, it's sometimes it's like you know just be well, well be the what, best, where the, the best. where the story needs to go right i mean some of the best examples of good science fiction in that way uh, I mean, you know, like Ex Machina ends with a very cautionary, like, oh, man, this is like what's going to happen. But like, yeah, a movie it's, like a ha her it's a happy ending a if you're on her side. If you're on her side, exactly. <laughs> um, but like the movie Her ends, uh, I think, on ultimately a, a, a rather hopeful note. Yeah. Um, yeah which, that's a happy ending that, but that it's isn't nuanced. nauseating. <laughs> right. Well, it's a nuanced ending because yeah. there's there it's it's bittersweet and yeah. and there's a sense in which there's loss in it. And that's where I think any good storytelling comes back to having a healthy understanding of nuance and, and how to tell a story that feels satisfying in that capacity and not like a blast of sugar at the end. You, well, it's more true to life. Do, do you think, like, Bless. you know, I, I was curious about uh, big scale versus small scale. Like, her, in my mind, is one of the smaller scale ones. You know, I, I didn't even think of it until you brought it up. You know, but is inherently sci-fi requiring this bigger, grandiose scheme? Or is, you know, is it possible to just tell this, like, small story where you're able to do all these nuances and everything, but, you know, in... You know, it's it's more what you don't see, right? That it tells a bigger story of something, you know. Because like, to me, I would probably if if there was more films like that, I would probably be more heavily into the to the genre. Because I feel like I'm well, I'm always thinking of like these big um, kind of master plan stories. Mm. Sure, you like, mentioned uh, Frankenstein Whistler. That's like yeah. a 
good example. Which, which technically, uh, by by most uh, sci-fi historians, uh, would be cited as as probably the true, the first true science fiction. Wow, uh, the birth of science fiction. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. I think I think what what is jumping out at me as we talk about like the optimism pessimism thing and and what doesn't sit well when things are either way too dystopian or way too utopian is that you know the view that human nature is inherently good or human nature is inherently bad i think doesn't doesn't resonate so much as there's good and there's evil in in all of us like the dichotomy of man and and we are capable of of great good and we are capable of great evil and there's always that battle right that to me is what when you can when you can reflect that in a story and you can show that battle in the in in the world that you're yeah, portraying that or, or, or you're exploring a theme like loneliness like you're just mm-hmm. literally you're being like everyone has felt lonely or everyone has felt right. anxious or depressed it's like explore that theme and then put a situation in there where it's like okay, we'll give you a companion, but this companion is not, you know, even Blade Runner did it with, you know. Yeah. It's like. The virtual companion. Yeah. Does that fulfill that human void that we all actually have or not? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, to, to answer your question, John, I think it's, it's, it's a worthwhile question. The the sense of like, does science fiction have to have scale? And, and I would say no. Um, and, and there, there tends to be more there. And this is where, you know, I, I tell people, uh, the thing that I learned years ago, which is, um, the best science fiction stories tend to be, uh, on pages. Uh, so they, they're in the pages of science fiction magazines. They're in the pages of books. Uh, so you do, you tend to have to read to get there. Um, now more and more we're starting to see some of those hit screens, TV screens, movie screens. So, you know, so there are cool shows like the expanse They're based on a great series of books. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you get some fascinating storytelling with, uh, um, black mirror that mm-hmm. is, can be fairly small scale. And I've done that myself, uh, where a lot of the, the science fiction short films I've made, uh, they might have a backdrop of a big scale thing, like I, you know, an alien invasion, uh, like I did for for a short uh, of mine called Silent Universe. Um, but really, the story is about two brothers hiding and trying to navigate the situation, and their interpersonal relationship, um, given sort of some of the fallout that that's taken place between them. Uh, and that, so there is room, I think, for those things within those contexts. That and and there's something about being forced into this big situation that then forces them to have to have these bigger conversations. Uh, you know, why one brother lost his faith, why the other one never had it in the first place, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things, mm-hmm. because you're dealing with this cataclysmic scenario. But the it's just the scenarios cataclysmic. The actual execution is very intimate, yeah. you know, and, and it doesn't doesn't involve but one big um, explosion scene. Yeah, I <laughs> feel know? like the, everyone's that I've talked to, their favorite scene from like Interstellar, at least for me, was or at least the most memorable was just when he was watching the videos of his daughter on the plane. It always you know? comes back to those like, deep 
human connections, relationships, yeah. really just relationships. It's like how my, you Where, know, the, the music and the acting come together with the story of kind of a heart-wrenching moment of he kind of maybe put his career above his family or whatever it is. And it's just like, oh, why am I like in tears about this space movie? Like normally that wouldn't happen, but it was executed so well in such an emotionally engaged moment. And it was intimate enough. I think, I think that's exactly. And it probably could have been set in a different genre and still gotten that emotional. Yeah. But relationships, like even what you were saying earlier, Whistler, with how you felt after watching Contact, that was even just your relationship with the universe, right? Like, it's still relationships, right? To get to know you better, I, I got, I have a, indulge me on this little game. I have a, uh, a list of six, maybe seven films, and I'll just say them. And you, you rate them 1 to 10 with how you feel about mm -hmm. them. Let the world get to know Michael Whistler a little bit more. Ooh. This whole episode is about sci-fi, and I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, ready? All right. Hot twist, we made this whole episode up. Right. Uh, recent sci-fi film, Arrival. Uh, 10. Ooh. Starting well, strong. Starting strong. Oh, coming out, not, coming out not just strong with that not one. Just, not just ten for for a sci-fi movie. Uh, it's easily one of the best films of the decade. I will yeah. go that far. Mm, I loved, loved it. it. Oblivion. Give it somewhere between a seven and an eight. Is that Tom Cruise? I haven't seen. It. Yep. That, that, by the way, nerdy filmmaker talk, that's the movie that pioneered the use of 4K projectors uh, for your scenery instead of green screen. Not a bad uh, film. Mandalorian. I liked it. Mm. Oh, the LED screens? In this case, yeah, pr projectors. Pro oh, yeah. They were projectors. Projection they mapping. Look, yeah, they look so good. Yeah. Okay. Um, so much better than green screen. Annihilation. Nine. I haven't seen that one. What's wow. that? What is that? Oh, you'll have to look That's, it up after. It's, it's where it works. Cool. It's but, the same uh, guy who did Ex Machina and, and Devs. That's quite good. Yeah. It was a okay. pretty good experience. I, I wouldn't go as high as nine, oh. but that <laughs> was pretty good. Blade Runner, <laughs> the original. <laughs> Which cut? <laughs> ah, good yeah, question. right. Like five the director's cut. <laughs> the director's cut. The director's cut, I give. I give it a nine. Time Cop. Ooh, Time Cop. I saw that in theaters. <laughs> I, I think I kid. did too. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that's a pretty solid two. <laughs> <laughs> Minority Report. Uh, that one, I would probably place it, I'd say six. It's got a, a lot of really worthwhile philosophical questions. Agreed. That continue to be relevant. Um, it, 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 it has its moments. All right. And the final one, this is a good hard science uh, reference for you. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Wow. And you know, it's, you know what? I've never seen it. That's, that's a... Uh, that's a hole in my uh, in my uh, awareness. Well, you need you to watch get it on that. tonight. Hmm. I, I how, absolutely need to. How is Men in Black Three not on that list? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that was time travel. Yeah. 
Mm. Dude, Men in Black Three is dope. <laughs> three. I gotta why, watch why it again. Why did you say three? Men in Black Men in Two Black... was my favorite growing up. Men in I actually Black watched two, two, then one, then three. <laughs> two is really rough. Two is really bad. The first one's really good, and the third one is honestly the the best. I think it's funny when wow. you when, when you're young and you're watching one. And you don't care if it's good or bad. It was just the fact that you could watch a PG-13 movie. <laughs> <laughs> then you supersede, I love it. you supersede if it was good or I bad. I love this movie. <laughs> I know. For it me, really that was, was Liar, so Liar. I was like so excited to watch Liar, Liar. Oh, yeah. Well, should we wrap? It's been a, an hour. Totally. Yeah. Wait, where, On can this we, planet, where can people find your books and your, your movies and and podcast. anything else? In your uh, podcast. Any stories, Whistler, in your podcast. Yeah. I'll plug to, yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I, I'll plug myself into the matrix here. Um, surprise matrix wasn't on that list. Uh, but uh, yeah, if people can what check out my stuff, uh, it's at michaelwhistler.com. It's spelled M I K E L W I S L E R.com. It's a really weird spelling. So I just generally spell it for people. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, my most recent science fiction novel, Sleepwalker. Uh, is available there as well as my first one, Unidentified. Uh, more X Files like on there as well. Uh, that one is available as an audiobook as well. So if you happen to be more of a listener, you can check it out that way. Um, and the books really are available anywhere books are, are sold uh, thanks to my publisher. And um, the podcast uh, is also available pretty much on any uh, podcasting platform as well as YouTube. It's called Exploring Tomorrow, uh, Meaningful Science Fiction, and Life's Big Questions is the uh, the subtitle. Mm. And uh, continuing to do episodes with that um, and exploring sort of like dissect stories and science fiction stories and sort of like what uh, we get out of them uh, and maybe what's worthwhile speculating in them. Uh, and try to encourage people to check out some some interesting, maybe lesser known uh, works as well that I come across with. Um, so that's that's available Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Anchor, any of those platforms. Uh, it's there. Awesome. Well, Michael Whistler, it's been fantastic to have you on this podcast, and it is a pleasure to work with you and be a friend with you Michael. in life. Yes, likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank Thanks, you. Man. Always good. To, always good talking to you, Whistler. <laughs> Hopefully, I didn't, uh, you know, scare away all your listeners with all the nerdiness. But, uh, well, it was close with the Disney talk, but we'll scrub that out. Yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Till next time. Bye bye. Much love. Bye. See you later. <laughs> See you later. The, the cameras weren't recording. Yeah. Sweet.